Hey everyone, today's passage is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 to 19. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Suffering for being a Christian. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of, of, of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer accordingly to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let me start by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us in 1 Peter. Sometimes it calls us to hard things, so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the strength to do those hard things. Um, And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us um, soft hearts as well, just to listen to what you say, um, to not reject it, but to be really open to it. Amen. Okay, everyone, we're on the second last week of 1 Peter now, right at the end, and Peter's starting to tie up a lot of his final thoughts. And in doing that, he kind of sets um, us, sets his hearers in this really interesting context. Uh, He puts us at the edge of history and he says, the end of all things are near. But it can be a bit tricky to work out what he means by the end of all things. Sometimes he means that um, this is the very last moment in the history of the world. And he's, he means it in that way, like at the start of chapter one, where he says salvation is to be revealed in the last time. But now, for a little while, you've had to suffer. So the last time is at the very end of things, and that is not now. We're in now, not at the end of things. But then sometimes he speaks about it like we're in this era of the end times. Like in chapter one, he talks about, how Jesus is revealed in the last times for our sake. So we're in the last times, probably meaning the time from when Jesus was born um, or maybe from when he ascended to the time he will return. So he uses it in those two ways. In our passage today, in verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is near, it's coming and it's close, but it's not here. So I think he's talking about the very last moment of history, the time when God will judge everything at the end of history. But it doesn't seem very near. Maybe he thought it was close 2,000 years ago, 
But now, 2,000 years later, we can see actually it wasn't very near at all. So what does he mean that it was near? In what way was it near? I think he means it's near in the sequence of things. So the last historic event to happen was the ascension of Jesus. And the next historic event to happen will be the end of the world. And there's nothing in between those two things. So in that sense, the end of all things is near. The very next significant thing to happen will be the end of everything. And that puts an interesting lens on uh, how Peter views the world. You could measure things against time in different ways. So you can count maybe years from your birthday or years to the next big event. Uh, you could count in historical ages, like we're in the information age now or something. And that affects how you live. If you're measuring your time to a major event, like counting down the days until you get to quit your job or get married or have kids, you do things very differently. The way you count time affects how you do things. And in Peter's mind, the thing that matters, the most important way to measure time is by these world-changing events. And by that measure, we're at the very edge of history. So for today, taking on Peter's perspective of things and measuring time how Peter measures time, we're going to ask, what should we do? And his answer to that is kind of the super Christian answer to everything. The end of all things is near. So, of course, you should pray. And that sounds a bit trite. It sounds like he didn't think about that answer too much. But I think Peter means something really significant by that. Peter only mentions prayer twice in his letter, both in chapter 3. The first time he says it um, to husbands as a warning to make sure that you live with your wives in an understanding way. Because if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. And the second time he says, the ears of the Lord are open to the prayers of the righteous, but his face is turned against those who do evil. So he's probably talking about prayer uh, in those two verses. Oh, sorry, he's obviously talking about prayer in those two verses. But I think he means prayer as a marker for a person's whole relationship with God. Both times he's saying that if you want to be seen and heard by God, you need to follow his path. And the marker of that is prayer. Does God listen to your prayer? And so he too, where he says, be alert and sober, be alert and sober-minded, sorry. He's saying that if we're at the edge of history, in contrast to the habits of the nations or the pagans, uh, which you used to follow, he says, like debauchery and drunkenness and orgies and all those sorts of things, um, which he mentioned last week in verse 3. <clears throat> Instead of that, keep clear-minded focus. Do not do those things anymore for the sake of your prayer as in for the sake of your relationship with God. And then verse 8, he elaborates on that. The end of all things is near, so above all things, do these three. First, love one another deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Someone asked in Q&A last week, um, 
is this like the idea of a brownie point system? And what I take that to mean is um, if you sin but you also love, do they cancel each other out? And actually maybe even because um, love covers a multitude of sins, maybe a little love cancels out a lot of sin. Is that how it works was the question. And I gave my thoughts last week, uh, but looking at it closer now this week, um, I can, I guess, give a bit more clarity to that. The saying actually comes uh, from a saying in Proverbs chapter 10, which he says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. And you need to dwell on that a bit to understand it. But basically what the proverb is imagining is that there's two completely different responses in the situation where wrong is done. In the first one, you have hatred meeting sin. And the result is that conflict is stirred up further. Wrong plus hatred leads to more hurt, more wrong. In the second one, love meets sin. And when that happens, the sin is covered up or it's hidden. And to our ears, that sounds like God's just sweeping the sin under the rug. But the idea of covering or hiding sin is actually really positive often in um, the Psalms. The Psalms often talk of God, of us hiding in God um, and of us having our sins covered by God. So positively, it's more of a sense of being kind of enveloped. So when sin meets love, love is able to overwhelm sin. And even a little bit of love can swallow up a lot of sin. So it's kind of a beautiful picture. Imagine the grave wrong that's been done to you. Whatever thing could hurt you the most by whoever could hurt you the most. Imagine that. And the image that Peter's giving here is that it doesn't take much love to set yourselves on a path away from further hurt. You don't have to muster up enough love to become best friends with them again. You don't have to buy them a present. You don't even have to wish them well. But just enough love to not retaliate, maybe even say it's not okay now, but it will be okay. Just enough love, just a little bit of love can cover up a massive sin, even the worst sin you can imagine. And then he moves on. The second thing to do in verse 9 is to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. In the context of 1 Peter, it's probably the idea of welcoming strangers into your house who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Maybe they're traveling from other cities. Maybe they're exiles in your city, but you've never met them before. And the idea is to take them in. Um, So that context is a little foreign to us. And if you have the chance to do it that way, that's really amazing. But I think we can probably broaden it generally to being welcoming and to being helpful and to being accommodating in our general lives. To brothers and sisters, especially to brothers and sisters that we've never met. So easy to say, but it takes a lot of work to do. And the hard part, I think, is less the act of hospitality, but the doing it without grumbling. Third thing to do at the end of all things, verse 10, whatever gift you've been given, use it to serve others. Again, in last week's Q&A, someone asked, 
is it better to focus on doing good and influence only just the people around you in your small circle? Or should we focus on the rat race and earn heaps of money and then donate that to the church to help others in a really big way in the name of God? So you have those two options. And I think I, I, think I said something like, do the one that God's kind of built you to do. You'll probably have a natural inclination to one. You'll be able to do one naturally better than the other. So use that unique character that God's made you with in a good way. Don't ignore the other way, but work with the way that God's made you. Um, that might be by earning tons of money, uh, if you're able to do that, and then helping others, or it might be in some other way. And so by luck, or maybe by God's providence, he's actually given us a fuller answer in today's passage. And thankfully uh, for me, I guess, I don't have to take back what I said because it's in line with what God says today. Use whatever gift you've received to serve others. But it goes on and pushes it in a way that I've not really thought of before. I think in a way that's kind of exciting. Peter says that this act of using your gift for others, um, which he calls faithfully stewarding or faithfully looking after God's grace in its various forms, uh, is actually, well, it doesn't sound like much first when he says that, but it means something pretty special. Paul um, in his letters often uses the word gift for spiritual gifts like prophecy or speaking in tongues. But Peter here uses it in a more general sense. He's thinking of all sorts of gifts that you might think are nothing special, but they're the things that make you you and they're the things that you have a natural affinity for and they're the things that you maybe do a bit more easily than other people do. And they might just be little things, but whatever they are, when you direct those things in service of others, in the context, of, I think he's saying in service of fellow Christians especially, then you're faithfully stewarding God's grace. So your gift or gifts, when they're directed in, in this way, are an expression of God's grace, not your skill, but God's grace on your brothers and sisters. And that means that you might not be the multi-millionaire that can change things on a big scale, but your contribution, even if it's small, like setting out tables for lunch, because you notice those things when other people don't think about it, or staying back and cleaning the toilets because your, your heart can keep going and serving when others have gone home from church. These things that on the surface, whatever they are, might seem less impactful than a multimillionaire's money are at an intrinsic level, every bit as valuable because it's actually God blessing his people through you doing what you've been made to do, whatever that is. And so in verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, speaks, speak as though it's God's word. If anyone serves, then serving God's strength, meaning everything you do for your brothers and sisters, do it knowing that it's God's, it's God working through you so that God will be praised. And that carries with it a real elevation in the worth of what you're doing, even if it's a small thing. The littlest thing 
is literally raised up to the highest height because it's God working through you to bless his people. And he also gives you the responsibility then to do it wholeheartedly. So think about whatever your thing is, big or small, and see how you can use it for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the third thing Peter tells us to do. So at the end of all things, Peter says, above all things, do these three things. But actually they aren't really three separate instructions. They're just one thing. And it's the same thing he's been saying over and over again in the letter, to do good in the world. And now he says, do good especially to your brothers and sisters. So if we just heard these instructions and assumed that people followed them, you'd think that the end of all things coming was actually a pretty pleasant time. Everyone's treating each other nice. Everyone's doing good things to each other. But in verse 12 comes a warning. Don't be surprised that you come under fiery ordeals. Doing good in the world, even doing good uh, to each other, will not keep you from fire. And you should not think that that's unusual as the end of all things comes. Expect it to come and even more rejoice in it. But why would you rejoice in this? It seems like Peter has this thing for telling us to do things that are really hard and then telling us to be happy about it at the same time. Do this really terrible thing and then be happy that you're doing this really terrible thing. But why? Why does he say rejoice in this? He's kind of touched on it a few times in the letter, but here he kind of sums it all up. Verse 13 says, rejoice because you're suffering in the same way that Jesus suffered. And that's exactly what Christians are called to do, to suffer injustice, to bring about grace. And if we have joy in the suffering, it means that we'll be overjoyed when Jesus' glory is revealed because we'll share in that too. And then our seemingly senseless choices to suffer in the eyes of the world will be vindicated. So if you're insulted because of Jesus' name, you're actually blessed, he says. You're blessed in the moment because you're walking in the same steps that Jesus walks. And then you'll be blessed even more in the future because you'll share in the same glory that Jesus has. The same spirit, he says, that was on Jesus when he, the living stone, was rejected by humans but chosen by God is on you and is on me when we, like the living stone, will go down that same path and reach that same end. But Peter's like really quick to clarify something that is, uh, he said over and over again in the letter. Verse 14, none of you should suffer as a wrongdoer because, of, because none of you should be doing wrong. No Christian should be a murderer or a thief or a meddler. That was your old way of life. When you become Christian, you put those things aside. If you suffer, it should be as a Christian. And so we should not be ashamed to wear Jesus' name when we're suffering. And even praise God that you have a part in that name. 
It's like the contrast of the thief on the cross compared to Jesus on the cross. One is shameful because he deserves to be there. And the other looks shameful, but is actually glorious. And then verse, four, uh, verse 17, Peter gives us a bit of insight into God's working behind all these things. All this suffering that is coming upon us isn't because God's sadistic and he just loves to see us go through suffering. He says this is because judgment begins with the house of God, with the living stones being made into the house of God. That's where God chooses to start judgment. And that's kind of another unexpected revelation from Peter. So in our church tradition, we tend to emphasize the fact that we're not subject to judgment because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it's kind of right to say that from the perspective that we say it in. But we're just a bit maybe too loose with our words there. Peter nuances our thoughts here, saying, although we're not condemned, we are still judged. I think we probably clarified that idea when we went through Revelation. But the really surprising part is that it seems like Peter is saying our judgment starts now. It doesn't start at the end of all things. But when you're one who claims the name of Jesus, your judgment starts now, before the end of all things. And on top of that, these fiery ordeals, the oppression, the persecution that comes because we wear the name of Jesus, those are actually judgments on us, which is a pretty stunning way to look at suffering. On one hand, it's depressing because as we see Christians give up under unjust suffering, it might be an indication of what will happen to them at the end of all things. But on the other hand, the Christian who goes through these ordeals and perseveres and one by one goes through ordeal after ordeal, really does have something at the end that's more precious than gold. But it is very hard. So I don't want you to forget the promise in the first chapter of 1 Peter, where he says that we're shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation. So God will provide everything we need to get through these fiery ordeals, but they are judgments on us. And then here in verse 18, Peter encourages us in another way. He quotes from Proverbs again, saying, if it's this hard for a Christian to be saved, if Christians have to walk through fire as intense as this, imagine what it will be like for the unbeliever who has to walk through a very different fire and a very hot, even an even hotter fire on the last day. So bear up in your suffering. He says it's refining you and it's better than the alternative. That's how you should live at the end of all things. So Peter speaks from a time where Christian persecution by um, society was uh, pretty common as a whole. And it would have been incredibly hard to remain a Christian through that type of time. Our society hasn't yet drawn a hard line uh, in the sand between Christians and the rest of culture, or at least not in a very demanding way just yet. Uh, but sadly, like many people still fall away. 
because the Christian call is hard. And then imagine the time when it becomes hard, which for us might be soon. The natural cycles of history kind of swing in favour of Christianity and then out of favour and then in favour and then out of favour. And it seems like right now we're swinging out of favour with Christianity as a culture. And maybe it'll go like that for the next decade or even longer, maybe our whole lives. And so the Christian call is hard. And I don't think it'll get easier for us to continue as Christians over the course of our lives. I think it'll only get harder in the society that we live in. Could be wrong, but I think that's the way it's going. And Peter isn't under any illusions that it's easy. So his end point of all this in verse 19, knowing all that, is that those who suffer according to God's will, that is those who bear up with injustice to bring about grace because they're conscious of God, that's kind of what we've talked about the past few weeks, should commit to God. They should go down this path and they should keep going down this path until the end. It sounds simple, but it it makes sense. If you've started down this path of following God, of walking like Jesus, of bearing with injustice, then keep going down this road. Don't go halfway and turn around. Give it all to God. You've taken that first step. You've done some good. You've borne up with some injustice. Don't stop. Continue to do good in all the different ways that that might look like in your life. The big things that you have to build up courage for, do good in those. The little things that no one will notice, do good in those. Do good until the end so that at the end of all things, you'll be overjoyed. The alternative helps you escape fire for now, but walks you right into the fire at the end of all things. And it's without glory. So the path is hard for a Christian and it's full of suffering. But Peter's encouragement is that at the end of all things, you'll be left with a faith that's of more worth than gold and you'll have immeasurable joy. All right, let me pray. Um, Father, I would pray um, for us that you would help us to continue walking down um, the path that follows Jesus. It can be really tempting to um, walk off this path when suffering comes, but we pray that you would give us the strength to endure all these fiery ordeals um, so that we might persevere to the end, we might continue to do good, and that we might receive joy um, at the end of all things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now it's time for Q&A, so uh, feel free to just you know, put in questions as we go along, but uh, get John up here. First start, so somebody mentioned verse, in verse 10, it reminds me of the parable of the talents uh, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Yeah, without, without looking that up, is that the one where it's like he gives one talent to someone and then 10 and then five? I think it's that one. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's kind of not surprising. Actually, a lot of 1 Peter has um, hints of teachings of Jesus from the Gospels. Like, I didn't, I haven't really mentioned it ever, but like a lot of what Peter says kind of 
is you could trace it directly to something that Jesus is taught in the gospels. And it's not too surprising, I guess, because like Peter was one of Jesus' apostles. Um, so he would obviously be really influenced by a lot of the things that he's gone through with Jesus. Um, but yeah, good connection if it's that one. <laughs> uh, I'll just have a quick check. 14. Yeah, yeah, each according to his ability. Yeah, that's the one. Yep. I, I agree. A lot a lot of hints to that parable. Yeah, good, good catch there. Uh, next question. So can you clarify the connection between judgment and suffering? Suffering is a consequence of his judgment on us now. Yep. Yeah. So this is um this is tricky because it's a new thought for me. Like I had never I don't like I don't think Paul talks about it in this way. I think this is a, a unique thing to Peter. So um, if you look at um, towards the end, uh, for it is time, so talking about the fiery ordeals that will come on you, don't be surprised, um, because it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And so talking about these ordeals, he sees that as the beginning of God's judgment um, across the whole world, but for now it's, his judgments upon his own people. So his own people will be judged. And part of that judgment is the ordeals, the fiery ordeals that we're going through now. So I think how this works is, so it's not like any kind of ordeal that you go through. Like if you stub your toe, that's not like one of the judgments from God, but it's like ordeals that you go through because you wear the name of Jesus. So the moment that you take on Jesus' name, that you say you're a Christian, that you're following him, um, the you should start to expect that people will, um, in in various ways, right, in, in our society, probably more lightly, more socially, will start to persecute you and will start to reject you for different things because you're a Christian. Um, and that suffering is God's judgment on people that claim Jesus' name in that I think this is the connection in that um, each of those moments is a chance for you to give up the name of God because of that suffering, or it's a chance for you to hold on to the name of God. And so it's judgment in the sense that if you give up, it might be an indication of your, um, your final judgment possibly. Uh, But if you persevere, that shows that you actually will be judged favorably at the end of all things. So uh, I hope that's clear. That, that's the connection I was trying to make. And uh, yeah, pretty uniquely from Peter, as far as I know. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a new thought for me. Okay. But th- yeah, thanks for hopefully clarifies that. Yeah, asking. Um, all right, next question. I'm not sure if this is to do with suffering as we get closer to the end, but perhaps on a more personal note, it seems like it's harder to maintain friendships with non-Christians as they become more like the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I find that's true. Um, definitely over. So I guess I became a Christian like high, mid high school or something. Um, and at that time, my friendship group was basically like a hundred percent non-Christian and very few Christians. And now it's like, almost 100% Christian and very few non-Christians. So I guess that's been true in my life. And like in some in some ways that's reassuring because it means that I guess you're conforming more to Jesus 
And so that you, by nature, find more in common and um, enjoy time more with other people who are also on their path of conforming more to Jesus. Um, so I think that's a really true thing. Um, and it's not necessarily bad. If I'm, if I'm going to read into the question, I might kind of assume that it's coming from the perspective of, you know, if I lose touch with my non-Christian friends, how do I evangelize? Um, and man, oh, I've got, I've got too many thoughts on that, but, uh, I would say it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, in the sense of the, the picture. So I remember back to when Peter was talking about the wives converting their non-Christian husbands. And I was saying that that kind of comes, uh, not only as the wife submits to the husband, but as he sees all Christian wives all submitting to their husbands. So there's something attractive about the Christian life. And so if you live a good life and all Christians live a good life, even though you might be slowly losing touch with your non-Christians, they would see that the Christian life is really attractive and that might be very effective for evangelism. Um, anyway, that's a very brief thought. I've got, yeah, I'll stop there because I'll just keep going on. But um, yeah, I agree. I feel the same thing. It's not necessarily bad. It might even be a good thing. Right. Um, next question. Um, how is the church called to respond during these fiery ordeals? Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think Peter's uh, main call is just to persevere. It's like, don't like expect that people will not like you because you're doing Christian things because you're following Jesus and to keep doing them anyway, like gladly embrace that suffering, not all suffering, but suffering that comes because of the name of Jesus, gladly embrace that and keep persevering down that path. Like it's, it's super hard. Like, Every even small things make me want to like. Oh, it'd be easier if I wasn't a Christian. Even like coming to church on a Sunday, it's like, man, if I wasn't a Christian, sleeping on Sunday, don't have to write a sermon Saturday night, and like chill out. But like, yeah, that's a small thing, right? But big things, like even more. I I, I get that it's hard, but I think Peter's just saying keep going. That's how the church should respond. Mm. Okay, um, next one. To what extent could judgment now be connected in with the Old Testament idea of judgment being a time of sorting the wheat from the chaff? Judgment now. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, yeah, I, th I think uh, we kind of touched on that. Yeah, I think it is. So the judgment now, I think, would be sorting wheat from the chaff in the specific sense of um, people who claim to be Christian. The judgment now sorts out who is a Christian and who's not who is only claiming to be a Christian from who is actually a Christian. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, that's another good observation that I agree with. And then the, the judgment at the end of times will sort everyone once and for all. Okay. Um, it looks like the final question we've got here. Uh, so in verse 18, does that mean that righteous people can still lose their salvation? Um, so verse 18 says, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Ah, uh, no, I get how it sounds like that. Um, no, so like in to be righteous is to be saved, right? It's uh, one and the same for God. Um, he, his people are the righteous ones, and he makes his people righteous. So it's kind of it's they're very closely linked. Um, so what I think verse eighteen is saying is that. 
look how hard it is for a Christian to be a Christian. They have to go through all these fiery ordeals and they have to keep persevering. If that's how hard it is for a Christian to be a Christian, imagine how hard it is for a non-Christian on the last day. If God's people have to go through this now, imagine how much harder it is for non-Christians on the last day. And so it's like a, it's like a negative encouragement. It's like, yeah, this is hard, but there's harder stuff. This is probably the easier choice. Okay. Some really good questions there. Yeah, uh, tons of good questions. Yeah, thanks, good guys. observations. So uh, thanks for your time again, John.